0: You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now, here's your host, Michael Ware. Welcome to the Faith 2020 Podcast. I am your host, Michael Ware, and I am here to help you see 2020 clearly by demystifying the role of faith for the candidates and their campaigns in this presidential election process. In order to do that well, we are kicking off the podcast with a series of historical episodes looking primarily at Democrats and their relationship to faith in the 21st century. In the first episode, we spoke to Amy Sullivan. Uh, as as you heard, if you listened to that episode, Amy is a remarkable reporter and journalist specializing in the, in the relationship between religion and politics. She was a contributing editor to Time Magazine. She's written for the Washington Post, the New York Times, the New Republic, Washington Monthly, and the LA Times. In 2008, Amy published a book, The Party Faithful, How and Why Democrats Are Closing the God Gap. And that is a principal reason why we're talking to Amy for this episode. Amy is also the co-host of the Impolite Company podcast that she co-hosts with our friend Nish Wyseth, and I would urge you to check it out. In the first episode, Amy walked us through 2004, which was really a low point for Democrats.
1: Florida alone, the Republican Party had a state chairwoman for evangelical outreach. She Hmm. appointed a dozen regional coordinators around the state, and she, in addition, designated outreach chairs in each of Florida's 67 counties just for evangelical outreach, mind you. Each county chair recruited between 30 and 50 volunteers to contact and register their evangelical neighbors. And it goes without saying, make sure they get to the polls. The carry campaign, wow. meanwhile, in its general election, had hired one junior staff aide who had no previous national campaign experience to oversee all of their religious outreach. They allowed her one intern, unpaid, of course, and the two of them yeah. had a single telephone between them.
0: John Kerry was the Democratic nominee. He was not able to navigate what can sometimes be the treacherous waters of, of faith in politics. There was Wafergate. There were, uh, there were uh, all kinds of right-wing conservative attacks on, on his faith. And his campaign neither had the infrastructure nor, frankly, the knowledge to push back on those attacks. And it led to his defeat they felt like they had hit rock bottom.
1: Little did they know, Michael, (laughs) but they thought they had hit rock bottom.
0: And so in this episode, we're going to talk about what Democrats learned from that, or at least what some Democrats learned from that and how they tried uh, to address faith in a more thoughtful, intentional way with the help of some religious leaders, the help of some strategists who were attuned to this. But you'll hear all about that in this conversation with Amy Sullivan. So proud to bring it to you. Folks, here's part two of our conversation with Amy Sullivan.
1: So the assumption was Mm. that Bush got reelected thanks to believers. And um, because Americans are more religious than not, or at least were at the time, that in order for Democrats to do better next time around, they needed to actually pay attention. Um, I think we're in a slightly <laughs> different situation now, but that was that was one of the takeaways. And so, yeah, sure. When a few people had some ideas and came to the congressional and Senate campaign committees with them for the midterms about how to try out some pilot projects in. Doing religious outreach and in actually, and this was, I think, the key establishing long term relationships with right. religious voters and with religious leaders. For the first time, there were democratic organs that were willing to say, okay, all right, well, we'll give you some money for that, or we'll let you work with our candidates. Hmm. And it was really um, because they felt like they had hit rock bottom. Um, And so that Mm. really is what accounts for um, a new openness towards other ideas.
0: So that expressed itself, like you said, through openness to work with candidates. This coincided with Rahm Emanuel being chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, where, you know, sort of. Famously or infamously, depending on your perspective, uh, there was a an openness and some would even say, you know, a concerted effort to using a certain terminology – having Democratic candidates running in districts that reflected those districts. And so that meant a surge of pro-gun rights candidates also included a surge of candidates, Democratic candidates who are running as pro-life or as culturally conservative voters. I think a, a sort of prototype example of this would be, you know, Heath Shuler, the former football star who uh, who who ran in a typically Republican district and, and won. But we saw, you know, dozens of these candidates get recruited and many of these candidates are the ones that uh this cadre of faith strategists were were working with these were the people who knew that if they weren't doing some of this outreach they wouldn't be able to win in their congressional districts um a- Amy do you have any sort of insight into like how how this actually what did it look like for a democratic candidate to do it, uh, to do you know more faith outreach than uh, had otherwise been done. I mean, was this voter guides? Sure. Was it radio ads? Yeah, what did it So did some intent? of it
1: was indeed, as you said, running a different kind of a candidate. And Rom would have argued it was simply pragmatic. Why would you run a candidate right. who wasn't well-matched for the district? But um, unfortunately, one of the lessons that I think came out of 2006, which was a very successful year for Democrats in the midterms, was it seemed to affirm the fears of people within the party who said we, hmm. we shouldn't be trying to reach faith voters because they assumed right. it meant you're throwing women under the bus. You're throwing marginalized people under sure. the bus. The only way to win is to run conservative candidates and why should we even bother winning that way? However- Uh, what I would argue should have been one of the lessons to come out of 2006 is that you can run your same liberal democratic candidate just a different way. And for that, I point to Michigan, which happens to be my home state, but I also did a lot of reporting there ahead of the 2006 midterm. And what I watched was the campaign around – the the work around Jennifer Granholm's um, run for re-election right. there. So Jennifer Granholm, very popular Democratic governor, um, but at a time when the auto companies weren't doing great and um, it was not a sure thing that she was going to be able to walk into a second term as governor. Um, she was very liberal, very outspoken, Um, But she, you got to give her credit, was also willing to do things in a different way. And so was the head of the Democratic um, Party in Michigan at the time, who was himself not a religious guy, but he signed on um, for an effort that uh, Mara Vanderslice, who had served as John Kerry's single (laughs) religious outreach person in 2004 – And Eric Sapp, who was another Democratic um, politico, they put together a a consulting arm, and they had a a plan that involved spending a year before the election going around the state, and particularly the west side of the state, which is around Grand Rapids, um, much more conservative than the the east side around Detroit, and filled with lots of people and reformed churches and people who had never had a Democrat, certainly not a Democratic candidate or somebody from the, the state party, sit down with them. <laughs> but it, it turns yeah. out that doing the shoe leather work of really just showing up at churches and saying, can we talk to you? And can you bring together 12 of your colleagues? And can we just have you know morning coffee and conversation? And they they had over the course of a year... Dozens and dozens of meetings, not trying to persuade anybody that you know the pro-choice approach of a Jennifer Granholm was better than their approach, but just talking sure. and demystifying each other, humanizing each other, hmm. and the the goal of this was not necessarily to swing a whole bunch of previously Republican voting evangelicals to back Granholm it was the hope that these pastors wouldn't get up in their pulpits the weeks before election day and preach that it was a Christian's duty to vote Republican, that Democrats were basically evil and it was your Christian duty to get them out of office. And if they were able to do that, it was a win. And fast forwarding, (laughs) um, it worked. Yes. It worked. They they had similar efforts among um, Catholic communities, some um, through voter guides, some uh, because there were some sisters in the Detroit area who phone banked. And if you're a Catholic and you get a call <laughs> from Mary Catherine, yeah, <laughs> Sister Mary right. Catherine, calling on behalf of Jennifer Granholm, it makes you think. Um, now, people can yeah. argue over whether that's appropriate or not, um, but that was that was one of the things yeah, that was right. going on. And at the end of the day, Jennifer Granholm ended up um, doing about 10 points better among white Catholics and white evangelicals statewide than she did four years earlier when she first won. And her percentage of the white evangelical and white Catholics votes um, was higher than Democrats got nationwide that year. Um, And Mara and Eric did the same thing in Ohio with Ted Strickland running for governor there, and the same thing in Pennsylvania with Bob Casey running for the Senate, and had similar results. And all three of those states bucked the national trends where there wasn't really a change at all um, in terms of where those more conservative voters of faith were willing to um, cast their ballots.
0: Yeah, So, so they showed up. They listened. They showed a real concern for voters, even if those voters were unlikely to, to vote for them and grass tops leaders weren't likely to vote for them. I mean, as we pointed out, there is this debate that's you know healthy in the Democratic Party that is not new uh, between how big the tent should and can be for candidates who hold different positions on different issues. But I I think there's that debate. It's important not to conflate that debate with just showing up. (laughs) You know, so, okay, we could have a we could have a side debate on whether having Heath Shuler in the Democratic Party uh, in in the House was a was a good thing for the Democratic Party. But but certainly it was better to have Granholm picking up an extra 10 points without uh, changing her positions than not picking up 10 points among white Catholics and, and evangelicals. And so all that led to a pretty astounding midterm election. And of course, there are the historical factors that play in here. midterms for the opposing party of incumbent are usually, um, you know, swing in the opposing party's direction. But Uh, This was the first election in uh, history where the victorious party didn't lose a single incumbent or open seat in Congress or the governor's mansion. They picked up six seats in the Senate, 31 seats in the House. Uh, And of course, all of this paved the way for the Affordable Care Act for sort of signature Uh, legislative achievements between 2006 and 2010. And in some ways it paved the way for the successful White House run in, in 2008. Absolutely. Because it Um, denied George Bush
1: any victories in the two years that he, that's right. The last two years of his uh, administration. And it also, um, was significant. She knows is something that gets glossed over sometimes when we talk about, uh, you know, whether it helps to hire or uh, have a Heath Schuller in the caucus. Um, you know, you can argue whether that's better or worse, but um, I don't think a lot of Democrats sure. would argue that it's better to have Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House over a that's, Tom DeLay. That's at right. The time. Um, you're gonna that's right. You're going to get to consider a lot of different kinds of legislation. And more importantly, you're not going to have to vote on um, the kinds of legislation that a Tom DeLay would bring up. That's,
0: that's right. That's absolutely right. And uh, this is a historical sort of backward looking uh, opening episode of the, of the podcast. But what kind of lessons do you take from 2006 that, that you think apply to 2020 and what democrats are facing uh, heading into this re-election battle against donald trump
1: i think one of the main lessons is that you need not choose between women and faith or faith outreach uh between marginalized communities and faith um obviously we know that yeah. um Millions and millions of women are people of faith. Millions and millions of people in marginalized communities are people of faith. But more importantly, um, you can have a unapologetically liberal Democrat use kind of soft power methods um, to reach out Mm -hmm. to religious voters. And I still don't think that is quite understood in most democratic circles. I think Um, uh, People bring so many assumptions to the table when they hear faith outreach or they think uh, targeting faith voters. And they assume it means a lot of compromises. They assume that it's going to mean being inauthentic. Um, And Hmm. to me, the lesson of 2006 is it doesn't have to. You know, one of the last things that Jennifer Hmm. Granholm did during that campaign is she went to Hope College which is a uh, affiliated mm. with Dutch Reformed Church. It's got a, a fairly conservative student body. And um, she went there to give uh, kind of a, a big campaign speech in the, the final weeks of the campaign. And she got a standing ovation. And that was before she even said anything. She got a standing ovation when she walked in. <laughs> and my read on that at the time was that she was getting props for showing up. And I don't think Democrats understand how much of the antagonism that's been fed on purpose by people not acting in good faith, um, whether it's within the religious right or within the Republican Party, has been easy um, to convince people of because Democrats don't show up to talk to a lot of voters. Yep. Um, And so it's easy to believe that they don't respect you and um, they don't like you and they they wouldn't take your vote if you offered it to them um, because they're certainly not at your door asking to shake your hand to talk to you. Um, And there's no question that a lot of our religion has been tribalized and I think it's so much worse now than it was 10, 12 years ago. Hmm. But I still think those general lessons apply. And if you don't have to shift over an enormous amount of resources from some other aspect of campaigning in order to have some people sit down and do this kind of long-term relationship building. I don't understand why you wouldn't do it.
0: Well, that's a wonderful note to end on. Folks, I would really recommend you follow Amy Sullivan's work. Uh, Amy is an incredible journalist for uh, Yahoo, at Time, Washington Monthly. Amy, are there any closing thoughts that you have, any ways that you'd like for people to uh, to connect with you?
1: Well, I'm on Twitter at, at SullivanAmy. It's Impolite Company podcast. Imp- and um, we are currently uh, kind of in between but putting out a few episodes um had a really good interview with journalist Stephen waldman oh great um in our most recent discussion about the kind of roots of religious history and religious religious freedom and religious liberty in america well
0: amy thank you so much for joining us uh for the podcast and uh hopefully we'll be able to have you on again uh, as we get closer to uh, 2020 and we could talk about uh the current day i hope so great thanks so much Well, that concludes our two-part interview with Amy Sullivan to open up. The first two episodes of the Faith 2020 podcast. Again, we're so grateful to Amy for joining us. Check out her book, The Party Faithful, How and Why Democrats are Closing the God Gap. It'll help uh, give you more background and information on what we discussed in these two episodes. And then also check out Amy's podcast, the Impolite Company podcast that she co-hosts with our friend Nish Weissett. Well, folks, we've made it through 2006. In the next episode, we're going to talk about a man who has been important in my life, important in the story of the Democratic Party and faith. And, of course, I'm talking about Barack Obama. My Christian faith, then, has been a sustaining force for me over these last few years. All the more so when Michelle and I hear our faith questioned from time to time. We are reminded that ultimately what matters is not what other people say about us, but whether we're being true to our conscience and true to our God. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. In the next episode, we'll talk about Barack Obama's rise, the way that faith was woven, not just in his political rise, but even in his community organizing days. And we'll talk about that 2008 campaign and why it was so different when it came to Democratic uh, presidential campaigns and faith and why it contributed to his success. Until then, this is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Weir, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. See you next episode. Faith 2020 is produced by Pottery Studios and brought to you by the Ann Campaign. Learn more about the Ann Campaign by visiting anncampaign.org. Our producer for the show is Bo York. Our guest this week was Amy Sullivan, and I've been your host, Michael Ware. Look forward to speaking with you again on the next episode of Faith 2020.